Transmission will start in five seconds from now. Five, four, three, two, one, in. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. They're frequently dumb, but they're sometimes astute. They're always emphatic on a degree absolute. They're breaking the prisoner right down to the root. That whole TV show on a degree absolute. If you like lava lamps and weather balloons, and whack-ass inflections from Patrick McGoon, Chris and Glenn made a podcast especially for you. It's a degree absolute. absolute. Glenn. Chris. We're a good ways into our podcasting journey now. We're getting into a groove. We're hitting our stride. We're finding our sea legs. But as I listen back to the episodes that we've been making, I just can't help thinking we need more transistors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need transistors that look really, really cheesy uh, and really, really of the moment and of the time. Uh, electronic equipment, Chris. Electronics, one of those words that's kind of lost its cachet. <laughs> Today it would be like digital or yeah. computer. But now when you hear the word electronic, you think of toys that talk and light up. It doesn't feel as menacing. In the 80s, when Marvel started reprinting the early 60s Stan and Jack books in expensive slick paper hardcovers under the banner Marvel Masterworks, mm-hmm. and I asked for a couple of those for Christmas, and was just hugely disappointing, because like that time, you know, that age, uh, they couldn't compare to the excitement of the contemporary latter-day Marvel comics, and really, if I'm being honest, more the DC comics. That it's I was a different re- vibe, yeah. Stan Lee was big into transistors. A word that he would plug in to explain how Iron Man's suit worked and how Professor X built Cerebro. And mm-hmm. Transistors really could do anything. And then years later, we'd just talk about, we're slicing into the mainframe, we're hacking into the net. Yeah. It's the same thing, same hand-waving, except a different era. Well, the funny thing about that, Glenn, is that in 1966, Patrick McGowan starred the long-running TV spy series Danger Man, resigned at the height of that show's popularity to create a new series about a spy who resigns from government service and wakes up in a mysterious, inescapable village where each resident is referred to only by their number. Actually, not every resident, not all the time. We've noted exceptions, but most of them. Surreal and provocative, silly and pretentious, head of its time, and innately and unambiguously and lava-lampedly of its time, that short-lived, long-tailed series was called The Prisoner. Yeah, it was. And they play chess. A game of chess with human pieces. That's a good move, wasn't it? Do you play chess, Chris? Do you know how to play chess? No. (laughs) You're going to find a way to air all of my deficiencies on this show before we're through. Can't grow a beard. Can't sing, according to you. Uh, Don't know how to play chess. These are things you're volunteering. Uh, nothing I pushed out of you. So uh, I, pl- I know how to play 3D Simpsons chess, which is where all the all the little characters of the Simpsons are the pieces. But okay. I couldn't tell you how to play an actual game of chess. I, I look at that and I'm just flummoxed. Can you tell us quickly, like, who are, who are the pawns and the rooks and the queens and the knights and the whatever it's else? It's been a while, yeah. but Bart were all the pawns. All the pawns were Bart. I think Maggie on a hobby horse was the knight. I think Lisa was the bishop story checks out um i don't remember who the rook was and it was king it was you know who do you'd expect margin homer is the right. king and queen. well the reason i asked you is because the subject of our discussion today is checkmate the prisoner uh-huh. episode checkmate 
a Gerard Kelsey script, another Don Chafee-directed episode like Dance of the Dead, which we discussed last week, apparently shot largely concurrently with Dance of the Dead, like Dance of the Dead. This one got shuffled around in the, the sequence quite a bit. Our latter-day, what would we call him, guru, theorist, observer, Alex Cox, Repo Man, Sid and Nancy, etc., writer-director, and I never get tired of saying this part, previous A Degree Absolute guest, Alex Cox, argues in his book, I Am Not a Number Decoding the Prisoner, that Checkmate belongs third in the series. So considerably earlier than you and I looked at it, at least on this revisit. I don't dispute that. I mean, I would put something like uh, Free For All where he says I'm new here. Is it Free For All where he says I'm new here? No, it's Dance of the Dead where he says I'm new here. I'd put that a little earlier than this one. But uh, yeah, it does have a feel. He's still learning some of the ways of the village um, and some of the basic mechanics, which are that some people observe and some people are observed. Mm -hmm. Still figuring out to what degree he'd like to exert himself observing social graces Mm -hmm. of of the village or, or anywhere. But you and I know that these things are important. One wishes to be mutual towards others. Mm-hmm. Um, I still, you know, I thought that came up a lot earlier. I, I really thought the discussion of who's mutual, who's unmutual, I, I'm kind of surprised we haven't bumped into that yet. But I think yeah. that's solely applied to um, peace of mind, ah. a change of mind. I think that's okay. only in the episode Change right. of Mind, which comes up in a bit. Um, there's a hell of a lot of the cult of the individual, which gets mentioned here <laughs> for the first time. Yeah. Um, coming up at here and later, but uh, yeah, unmutual, that unmutual mm-hmm. stuff is for, from change of mind. I think. Well, I, I mean, I think it's important to us to be mutual, so that's why I want to make sure that we are politely welcoming our listeners. Welcome to the private, personal, by-hand, punch-card-driven podcast where we take this unclassifiable and unforgettable television series, The Prisoner, and... Chris, Chris, may I, may I, just this week, just this one week, may I? I have been waiting you can... for you to lift a goddamn finger and help out, man, <laughs> buddy, but the floor is yours, Glenn. I'm, not, I'm sure you have a very impressive list. The chessboard floor is yours. But uh, put it in your back pocket for now. This was uh, harder than I realized it was. Oh, but, um, oh, well, yeah, yeah. it's, it's very gratifying to hear you acknowledge that, Glenn. You'll see, you'll see, you'll see. Me, <clears throat> me. <clears throat> <clears throat> Did you need to do some uh, vocal warm-up? Uh, the, the leather, it's red, it's yellow. One I'm must good. protect one's instrument, Glenn. Uh, It's words to live by. All right, we take it and we push it like we're Nazis in a Munich beer hall in 1923. (laughs) Push it. Push it. Four out of six. We file it like it's a cake sent to a character in jail in a 1930s comic strip. Uh, Uh, Good. Or or in uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel uh, from uh, Mendel's Bakery. Mm -hmm. Five out of six. We index it like we're the stick of butter my old dog Dexter ganked off the Thanksgiving table four years ago. It was a thing to see, Chris. He just kind of sidled up to the table and slurped uh-huh. it right down. And then it was in Dex. Uh-huh. Okay. Six out of six for autobiography, one out of six for grossness. We stamp it like we misremembered the name of a high-energy percussive off-Broadway symphony coupled with dance played entirely on unconventional instruments such as garbage can lids, buckets, brooms, and sticks. Nine out of six. <laughs> Next level. <laughs> Uh, this next one, um, cover me. I'm going in. This, this requires a bit of <laughs> okay. a bit of stagecraft. Uh-huh. <laughs> stagecraft or tradecraft? Tradecraft. Never mind. I'm sorry. I'm harshing your your mojo here. Let me just center myself. We brief it like it's the very air what surrounds us <laughs> on Route 33 in Frogmorton, which is a parish in Worcestershire. 
acting. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's a, it's a number. Give me a number. Um, four out of six. Okay. <laughs> That's just the effort involved. Two, two-thirds. Two. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We debrief it like it's 2011 and we're publishing Superman comics. Chris, how did you not get this one yet? You of all people, oh. the new 52 Superman when they took away his red panties. Yeah, I think the new 52 was over so quickly uh, yeah. that uh, I didn't even have time to notice that Superman was pantsless, or at least like unicolor pantsed, like an ordinary person, not like a, a superhero. Well, he, was, he looked like he was in a jumpsuit. And we number it. Like when the dentist asks us how we're feeling after that second shot of Novocaine. Number. Yeah. Num we're number. Number. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, you chastised me a little bit for a number I hardly know her, but um, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll, okay. Okay. Five out of six. Five out of six. Good, good. Solid. I'll live with that. Mm -hmm. You earned that swig of bourbon or whatever it is that you just took, buddy. Now, now you know. Now it's, you know. Uh, it's, it's Jameson. Uh -huh. I like to mix it up. Okay. Get layers. Recriminations aren't going to help. It's a disgrace for us both. When do I leave? All right, Glenn, have you groomed yourself today? Have you shaved? Have you moisturized? Uh, no. No, okay. Well, I wish you would have because we are once again going before the Department of Corrections, buddy. Okay. Every every little bit, every little bit helps. This is yes. good. This is, uh, feedback is good. Last Change week is good. in the Dance of the Dead episode, I conflated the seven foot two inch Richard Kyle, Jaws and the Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker with the relatively compact six foot six Jack O'Halloran who ah. was non in Superman and Superman uh -huh. 2. I thought so. I, mm -hmm. At the moment, it, I, it occurred to me, but I figured you'd know you're non. I figured unless there was someone on our admittedly small team who had like written an entire book about Superman. Yeah, okay. That, that, All the, right. You know, right. anyone could, could make such a mistake. Glenn. And anyone did. Anyone anyone did. Glenn, did you know that Richard Kyle worked as a night school mathematics instructor at the William B. Ogden Radio Operational School in Burbank, California? Did you know that, Glenn? I, I didn't know the, that. The uh, Wikipedia citation for that little nugget is from the, the Modesto Radio Museum. <laughs> now, Jack O'Halloran, who yeah. by the time of his appearance as, as non in the concurrent productions of Superman and Superman 2 had retired from his career as a professional boxer with a record of 34 wins, 21 losses, and two draws. According to a 1987 profile in the Philadelphia Daily News, he mm. was offered and passed on the role of Jaws in The Spy Who Loved Me, which I find suspect. Yeah, I mean, it seems like uh, it would... It would it would hit exactly the same acting chops. It would use up exactly the same acting muscles, right? Because it's non-verbal and nice. hulking. <laughs> Very good. I don't, maybe he didn't want to do the braces. Yeah. Maybe, maybe maybe he had braces in real life, and he was like, I'm not putting braces back on for a fucking movie. You, you wouldn't want to have braces if you're a boxer, right? That would be, that's a recipe for, for, ugh, Yeah. So the uh, occasion of this 1987 Philadelphia Inquirer profile, Glenn, Mm. Was uh, it was the uh, Philadelphia Daily News, Chris? Oh, you're right. Mm -hmm. It was the mm -hmm. the Philly, right. This was uh, uh, back in the the glory days of of two two dailies in in Philly. Uh, right? There's uh, three. There used to be the Bulletin too. I'm a Philly boy, and so yes, I remember the Daily right. News. The Daily News was the distaff cousin uh, yeah. of the other two. I would say distaff cousin. Mm -hmm. hmm. It's the female a tabloid, a tabloid less reputable. One might say. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, he was profiled at that time. Because, you know, I couldn't let this go. Clearly because not. he was also in the 1987 reboot of Dragnet with Tom Hanks and Dan Aykroyd, which mm. I recall 
begging my father to take me to see. And he did. He eventually relented. The plot involves them taking on some kind of pagan cult yep. that had like scary goat masks mm-hmm. as part of their ritual. But I'm, I'm sure that my single decades ago viewing of this film would not have stuck with me were it not for the concurrent rap single City of Crime, as performed by Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks, which I have a clear memory of calling into either WAVA or possibly B106 to request the song, and even asking the DJ to hurry up because I really needed to hear it. See that stream act? We're just in time. We have stumbled into a major crime. They got the girl off right. Now that's not nice. I think she is the subject of a sacrifice. Buddy, we're putting this party on ice. But first you know we really ought to read them their rights. Read them their rights. Read them their rights. Well, I'm here tonight to rap about your rights. Because right now you're in trouble. Wow, you sweet summer child with no discernible taste in music. <laughs> that changed. Uh, this was the same summer that I, I asked for my birthday and, and got cassettes of uh, U2's The Joshua Tree and David Bowie's Never Let Me Down. No one counts Never Let Me Down among the Thin White Duke's essential albums, Glenn. No one. Yeah, okay, all right. But uh, yeah, so you, were, you, you contained multitudes even then, Chris. I, I did. I did. Uh, I remember seeing that video for City of Crime on endless repeat on Friday Night Videos um, for a very long, entirely too long. It, it, was, uh, <laughs> it was a hit. It was a hit. Shouldn't have been. Should not have been. Yeah. But was. Well, anyway, so as long as we are dutifully issuing this terse, pithy, just the facts, because Dragnet correction, uh-huh. we, we regret the error. I'm not going to be too hard on myself for conflating Richard Cutler and Jack Halloran. And again... We would need to have some sort of a an expert, some sort of a man of letters, someone who had conducted months of research. Uh, who is more foolish, the fool to, or the fool who doesn't correct the fool? I guess. I guess that's right. Uh huh. There, there you go, quoting Brief Encounter again. You just can't <laughs> stop yourself. <laughs> Something about tearing the arms off a gundar. Okay. A degree absolute regrets the error. <laughs> okay. Solid, solid piece of business. Thank you, thank you. All right, let's just, uh, we, we still have to do, oh, well, we have some reader mail. Okay. I sent some of these on to you. We're going to do excerpts, not full, full letters. Excerpts. And we're not going to read praise, right? We're just going to read questions. Uh, we'll, we'll, try to, we'll try to fast forward. I have a bit coming up okay. about, about how to solicit uh, uh, comments. So, I mean, Excellent. But I'll let you do your thing and okay. hang back. All right. John Barton writes... First, I'm really enjoying a degree absolute. Oh, sorry. Okay, we said we weren't going to. Uh, the level of scholarship you've brought to bear on it is impressive. Uh, again, we're trying not to do that. Um, impress people. <laughs> it has given me a reason to subject my wife to another viewing. <laughs> okay, sorry, Mrs. Barton. Uh, that's that's on us. Uh, okay, Glenn. As Desmond Llewellyn has said in many a Bond film, now pay attention. Uh-huh. One of my own private theories builds on Georgina Cookson's roles in A, B, and C in Many Happy Returns. Given that the dream sequences in A, B, and C are drawn from his own memory, number six's own memory, I've assumed that her presence at Madame Angadine's party means that she was someone he had encountered, though obviously did not know well, in his pre-village life. That she turns out to be number two fits neatly with the idea that whomever is behind the village, they have their tentacles everywhere and suggests that the true powers behind the village are quite distributed. 
On the question of which side is behind the village, I subscribe to the theory that neither of the two Cold War sides are running the village. The level of technology is far beyond what either side was capable of at the time, and the denizens of the village are seemingly from both sides of the Iron Curtain. Clearly, there are other sites and facilities run by the village's true masters, those helicopters, the never-ending parade of new number twos. They have to come from somewhere, and we have many examples that the minders have past experiences working together. I prefer to think that the village is run by an Illuminati-like third party, manipulating both sides to maintain their power over everyone. Uh, be seeing you, John from Seattle. It sounds to me like what John from Seattle is describing, Glenn, is something akin to a special executive for counterterrorism, <laughs> revenge, terrorism, revenge, extortion, mm -hmm. and et cetera. Right. Spectator. Spectator. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, like, uh, this is this has always been one of the limiting reagents in these uh, villain group names is they just, they will say things like evil in the name, like the Brotherhood <laughs> of Evil Mutants. That's a little on the nose, you know? Let us determine. Let, let's mm -hmm. let your actions dictate. No. Uh, call yourself like the Club for Growth. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Americans for fair taxation, and we'll, we'll exactly. get it. We'll we'll know what you're we'll, about. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I've heard that theory before. Um, I I subscribe to it personally. Either that or aliens or witches. I don't know. Uh huh. And this whole Georgie, this Georgina Cookson thing. I mean, she was around. She had an agent. She had a oh. headshot. Yeah. No, <laughs> you you've speculated that that Georgina Georgie C got around. We've uh, we've heard that from you. Mm hmm. Uh, all right. Are we are we out of sync? Are we are we still in sync? I think we're a little bit out of sync, but we're now you're out back of in sync. Mm -hmm. Out of my head when you're not around. Oh, oh. oh. See, I would have thought. I haven't heard that song since the '80s. No, that's true. I was trying to come up with an in sync song, but uh, <laughs> that's that's post time. to me. Yeah, right. What what it's am I supposed to know? Pop music that's a mere twenty years old. Yeah. Not not the guy. Okay. Thank you, John. Mike Wood from Kansas City writes, Leo McKern is a huge favorite of mine. Bring on the rumple of the Bailey pod, please. What do you think, Glenn? <laughs> I uh, never have actually seen it. Yeah, all I, I haven't either. That, uh, I haven't either. I thought with all of the insight you brought to bear on uh, Leo McKern's enviable hip mobility, you, you mm. would have at least sampled an episode. But... Um, I mean, it was on in the background in my home. I know that he refers to his wife as she who must not be named, um, and uh, that he enjoys the occasional post-prandial sherry, but uh, that's really all I know. <laughs> uh, he continues, I've often wondered what I've often wondered what wondered at what must have gone on behind the scenes, making this masterpiece slash mountain of rubbish, and I thank you for bringing the creative tensions to light here. Our pleasure, Mr. Wood. Thank you for writing. Uh, Toby Aiken writes, As a preteen in the early 80s, I would sometimes happen upon the prisoner on our local PBS station. The show fascinated me, but I only caught a few episodes, didn't understand it, and felt I was missing some fundamental connective tissue. I have the same half memories and feelings about it that I do of Space 1999, which I, mm -hmm. I have not seen Space 1999, but I have a colleague at Air and Space who has a model of whatever the, the spacecraft was called that's on, you know, the box of the, the DVD mm -hmm. set and all that. It, it's on his desk. So um, I'm, I'm not the biggest nerd at, uh, at Air and Space. Um, <laughs> your podcast has inspired me to start watching the show from the beginning to end if indeed such an order truly exists. Uh, Thoroughly enjoyed listening to your... Okay, sorry. That's that's praise. Um, uh -huh. 
Oh, here we go. Here we come to the, the heart of the matter. I'd really like to share it with my teenage children, especially since it clearly had such an influence on TV that they love, most notably Lost, which the whole family has obsessed over during quarantine. However, I'm afraid if we try to watch all of them, my kids will quickly lose interest, which I don't know. I mean, Lost was like, what, six seasons? Uh, yep. There's a lot less than that. Uh, anyway, my question for you both, as the only experts I know, ooh, all right, uh, mm. lovers, lovers not experts, as uh, future degree absolute, or actually by this point, possibly former degree, ab- no, future degree absolute guest Matt Gorley would uh, say of himself, and uh, Matt Myra, uh, what would be your essential five to ten episodes of the show, and in what order? In this case, essential could mean equal parts important to the overall story, or just plain fun to watch. Hmm, boy. Well, you got your arrival, you got your Chimes of Big Ben, you got your checkmate, uh, you got, um, I mean, I like the world building that happens in It's Your Funeral, uh, where we see other resistors. Hmm. Uh, I like Hammer into Anvil, I like Dance of the Dead, I'd skip then to Once Upon a Time in Fallout. Is there anything I'd... I, um, I, you, I need to have, for? For, for me, um, uh, definitely want to have Free For All and Schizoid Man in there. Mm. And Dance of the Dead could almost be an ending, right? Yeah. And I mean, I haven't, mm-hmm. I haven't revisited Once Upon a Time and Fallout in, um, you know, more than 15 years as we're going into our final tranche of episodes here. So oh, there it comes that word that we I thought we were done with for uh, at least until the next election cycle. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Took me you know took what? me back. Alex Cox used it. Um and and it uh he he re reinfected me with the language. Um yeah, so I think I'm going to go arrival free for all. I mean, Schizoid Man is not essential, but it's just super super fun. And then uh Dance of the Dead and Wild Card. You know, plug in your mm-hmm. your your favorite. Could be Hammer and Anvil. Uh, mm-hmm. I also don't remember Living in Harmony well. I'm I'm hoping I will right. be surprised and delighted by by Living in Harmony, or maybe the girl who was death. If it's just deliberately going out there and and having a lot of fun with the spy cliches of the of the era, I might really enjoy mm-hmm. that. So uh, yeah, I'm saying Arrival, Free for All, Schizoid Man, Dance of the Dead, and Wild Card. What about the last two? Those are essential. Once upon a time and Fallout. Dance of the Dead, he they fake his death, and um, mm-hmm. he accepts that uh, he he might not be be getting out, or at least mm-hmm. that he's going to have to radically reconsider his his time frame for for busting out. So, and and given the kind of unresolved place that we know this series is going to anyway, I sort of like the, the symmetry, if that's what it is, of ending on an episode. That was all screwed up because Magoon refused <laughs> to shoot the ending and then complained that he didn't like the episode after it was messed up because he refused to shoot the ending. Yeah, but I'm sorry. As weirdly as this show ends, it is crazy and idiosyncratic. And having the show end with Dance of the Dead where it's a telex machine that, that starts <laughs> mysteriously, like that's not an ending. That is... That's that's a glitch. That's a computer glitch. That's nothing. That is going to be proven to be prophetic. That is going to be Tony ordering onion rings for the table. Yeah. As Don't Stop Believing plays. Uh, you know, he went big. He went big and he went home. Uh, so he managed <laughs> to do two things at once. He went big and he went to Santa Monica. Yeah, it's true. 
We'll have to revisit this, but I don't know why he basically just stopped after this, right? Supposedly, he, he wanted to, to do his adaptations of Ibsen and all. That was his, his dream. That was, like, once he had shot his shot and could presumably do whatever he wanted as long as he didn't spend too much money, he could have definitely made a low-budget version of Ibsen's brand if he had wanted uh-huh. to. Like, what, uh-huh. what was he doing? Maybe he went off-brand. Um, uh, <laughs> Ibsen's off-brand, yes. Um, uh, six out of six, Glenn. I often wondered why there weren't more episodes, because he's the one who said, like, the, this this idea is short-lived, it's not something that can last, and boy, does the episode we're about to launch into confirm that suspicion. <laughs> because, okay, so he was exhausted, right? He was, he was yeah. throwing himself 100% into this thing. He is this show, and when you have an episode that is essentially a workaround, because he was away filming Ice Station Zebra, it feels exactly like the workaround it is. Okay, um, but don't, we'll get to that. Yeah, we're yeah, because we're this is this is going to be in a separate episode from the okay. one that we're about. Right. So okay, so just right. one one. Oh no, we have two more, two more. Boy, mailbag is just overflowing today, Glenn. The the cup mm-hmm. runneth over. Paul Jackson writes, Chris, I'm afraid you've hit your peak with whack-ass inflections from Patrick Bagu, and it's all downhill for you. you. Sorry. We don't get enough Glenn Weldon thirst on other podcasts, and I am here for it. Do you still anti-praise, Glenn? You still think we shouldn't? uh... Yes. In fact, I have an idea. Uh, There are plenty of podcasts out there uh, that read their positive reviews into the mic as a means of what they believe to be audience engagement. I think it's scientifically proven that those podcasts are run by monsters, monstrous people. <laughs> Only monsters would force <laughs> listeners to yes. sit through people saying nice things about them. That's mm-hmm. like Narcissist mm-hmm. Story Hour, and it is unbearable. We are far too cool, far too humble for that. In fact, we are neither... Far too but, unmutual. But go with me here. So here's my idea, right? So listeners leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I know that's thirsty, but come on. Like, <laughs> it does actually help. And then in the review itself, you can write whatever you want. You can you can you can knock <laughs> you us can you can cut us off at the knees. Three and a half stars <laughs> underneath but, your five star. Absolutely, but you can say whatever you want about the show. But of course, in the comment field, include your hottest, your most controversial, your most counterintuitive prisoner take. You know what I'm talking about here. You, where you are the lone voice in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. You are shouting from the rooftops. It's the hill you're going to die on, and we will read that on the show and discuss it. Does that sound like a plan? Absolutely. I'm going over there right now to leave a five-star review and write that the whole thing should have ended with the Telex machine <laughs> going back to life <laughs> after. <laughs> All right, continuing with Paul Jackson. Uh, a fascinating resource or artifact you may want to look into is the tabletop role-playing prisoner supplement, GURPS the Prisoner. Huh, maybe not enough there for a full episode, but definitely worth a look. I always felt that a gothic horror-themed village would make for a great crossover with Dungeons & Dragons, Ravenloft, role-playing material. This is a Glenn question, or a Glenn mm-hmm. observation. Mm-hmm. Are, are you familiar with GURPS, the prisoner? I am not. I am not. But, uh, but I mean, this could be um, a really interesting role-playing environment, I suspect, because, you know, you, you would have a <laughs> faceless power that's running everything that uh, you can appeal to, but, um, but yeah, I think, isn't, I think... Isn't that what a game master is? That's exactly my point, yeah. yeah. Okay. So I, I think it could, be, it could be fun. And then the, the, my main thing is that if there is a, a supplement like that, it probably has a map of the village, and that's all I want. Yes, because you, you reject the map of the village that was published in the 2002 The Prisoner, the Official Companion to the Classic TV Series by Robert... Fair 
claw or cloth or cloth. I question it. it. I challenge it. I do not reject it out of okay. Fact. I All just, right. I just, I think it's really pulling from a lot of different places because, of course, All right. there was no, there was no map. Continuing, Mr. Jackson, I hope you'll cover the Prisoner Shattered Visage comic book. Yes, we will. Um, mm-hmm. Indeed, we we have on a, a sort of lost episode, but we we will revisit it uh, in uh, adult, grown-up table fashion. What? Uh, yeah, we're going <laughs> to... Uh, somewhere I own a number six style jacket with a homemade penny farthing button with the number square root of negative two. No, I didn't go a lot on a lot of dates in college. Why do you ask? Okay, yep. here we go. This is this is why I pulled this out of the mailbag. In free for all, I like to think that Magoon gets slapped once for each of the women he has treated badly on the show. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I like that idea. Ah, uh, yes. So far, every time the village tick, tick. has had an unqualified win, it's with a female number two. Be seeing you, that's, Paul Jackson. Well, that's an interesting point. Tick, tick. <laughs> tick, 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 tick. Uh, call me Rachel Herbert. Mm-hmm. Finally. Okay. Ara. Okay, you're Rachel Herbert. Uh-huh. Dick Anderson from Los Angeles says he binge-listened to all of our pods thus far, which was minus the Alex Cox episode. So that's eight. He listened to eight hours plus that's, of us uh, talking to this, this poor man. Uh, it's a work day. It's a uh-huh. work day. Uh, two quibbles. The recap at the top of the show. Since Chris typically rushes through it, it seems unnecessary at this point as podcast winds down. You could go right into your little wordplay that follows it without the origin story of the series. Pretty sure you won't be adding scads of new in listeners at mid-season. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally reasonable, rational objection. But, but yes, it's uh, it's we're 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 uh, getting a little consistency there. Yes. I like that. Uh, it's comforting to me. Uh, okay, now this this one hits me where it hurts in my eardrums. The sound mix. Your voices are both really low compared to the clips you play. I have to crank up the volume considerably when I listen. This would seem fixable. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, if you could know the hours. The I mean, I know you spent eight hours listening to us in one weekend, but uh, let me tell you what my weekends have been like since <laughs> about January. You fighting those luffs, huh? Huh? Those luffs? Those, those negative 24s? Those negative 18s? This is sincere valuable feedback offered in good faith and and thank you dick anderson i i don't want to hear it but i need to hear it i need to mm-hmm. hear it keep doing what you're doing your affection for the show is contagious that's bordering on praise your patrick mcgoon intonations are probably my favorite thing about the podcast and yes the theme song is a banger we'll we'll cut all that uh filthy damn right. approbation damn right thank you dick we're moving on to checkmate <laughs> Stand by for priority. Stand by for priority. Today's activities prognosis on number six. Number two requires it. Now, Chris, I like this episode a lot, as I tend to like the episodes where the script and McGowan and the prisoner uh, all kind of treat the other villagers as individuals, as people, fellow individuals, Mm -hmm. fellow prisoners. Not rotten cabbages, not... (laughs) <laughs> mindless slaves to authority. Yeah. Um, it certainly is a mutual attitude when, when he thinks go. that these people might have inner lives and be, be worthy of uh, respect, acknowledgement, and so exactly, on. Exactly, because as we've talked about, you and I, when those episodes where he's the special snowflake and he's the only individual and everybody else around them is just a mob, that plays into a possible subtext the show has, a sort of pseudo-Randian quasi-objectivist bullshit yep, where yep, yep. where the self is more important than all the weak-willed parasites that society forces you to surround yourself with. Um, 
So, like, even though Free For All, that episode Free For All, mentions rotting cabbages, there's that very important turn where after the trap is sprung and uh, number six gets elected, we expect the crowd to cheer, but they don't because we get a shot of their faces and we can see that they all feel badly about this elaborate ruse that number two is pulling on them because they've seen it before and they're going to see it again and it's taking a toll on them. But one of the reasons I think Dance of the Dead kind of collapses at the end is there's that moment when they all chase him and try to kill him and they become a mindless screaming mob just following orders. Hmm. And when that happens, I think that's when you feel the heavy hand of the allegory taking over. And that's when I think the show starts to lose any kind of sense of human stakes. Yeah. It, it becomes a thought experiment. We'll get a lot more of that in A Change of Mind, which I, I remember being my least favorite episode, actually, but that's coming up. Wow. Soon. Okay. Sub, sub-general. What would a sub-general be? A sub-general would be a colonel. I guess every, every <laughs> almost every rank is a, is a sub-general. A lieutenant? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, it's been so long, so I, I, it's entirely possible I'll like it more. I might like it less, but I just remember that feeling when he feels like he is setting himself above other people, and especially other villagers. This is a very kind of sympathetic treatment of the other villagers we see that they all have their own things going on yeah and yet this is another escape plot episode like the chimes of big ben like many happy returns sure and and this one really doesn't have that surreal edge that that either of those has i mean kind of the weirdest thing in it is is that it opens with a shot of rover uh, just making making Rover's way down down the street. We we hear the Rover roar, and most of the villagers, with one notable exception, and it's not number six, they they freeze. Like they don't just step out of the way to let Rover pass. They actually freeze. At least I think they're supposed to freeze because, in some shots, it's clearly a special effect where they've composited a moving Rover over a still photograph, and in others, they just told everybody to hold still, and. People can't quite <laughs> execute that bit of direction, so there's a little, sure. a little vibrating going on. This opens with some very nice, very striking, I would say, iconic visuals of the series. We kind of iris in on that overhead shot of the village. I love an iris. <clears throat> yep. And then there's that that road where everybody freezes on, and they're not frozen with fear. Like nobody has a, an expression of worry on their face. They're all. It's all just like some of them are smiling as they freeze. So that's all it is is habit. You right. know, it's obeisance, it's acquiescence, it's it's acceptance because that's what the yoke of authority does to us right. all, man. Like that's the, the thing we're yep. supposed to, I think, derive from that. Um, in the opening Q&A with uh, the new number two, we'll get Peter Wingard as number two mm-hmm. and his laugh is a good one. It's a sneering laugh yep. because this, this is a number two who doesn't push it. If anything, he's kind of underplaying his role here. Um, he's he's an unflappable hmm. number two. But also, what I like about him, as we get as we'll see him later, he's fully present in his scenes. There's a scene in the uh, the hospital where the psychiatrist is explaining some kind of experiment to him, and he's actually listening to her and curious about her work in a way that a lot of number number, yeah. number twos aren't. I think it might be his devotion to karate that uh, keeps him, <laughs> it might him centered be. and present. Uh, karate or, or eyeliner. He, he's devoted to both of those yes. things. His obituary in the Herald called him flamboyant actor Peter Wingard, which is code. And uh, also another another way you can tell is that the personal life section of his Wikipedia page is nine paragraphs long. Whenever that uh, whenever that happens, you know something's up. Yeah. And d- does that passage contain the phrase gross indecency with a crane driver in the public toilets in Gloucester bus station? Yes, it does. 
there's a similar arrest in the toilets at Kennedy Gardens in Birmingham the year before. Yeah, that's, that's not just uh, one of those boilerplate paragraphs that they have sitting around for, for those, <laughs> you know, when they need to get a no-bit out quickly. I mean, I've seen your your obits board at NPR, your obits whiteboard, you monsters. I saw the names uh-huh. on on that board, which uh, I shall not repeat because yeah, don't. I'm not going to participate in your sick necromancy. But in our in our sick journalism, is that what you're saying? Right. In our, in our acts right. of acts of basic journalism, yes, you're yes. just a bunch of hundred thirteens and hundred thirteen Bs over there printing whatever you want to print. Damn straight. And whether I'm a hundred thirteen or hundred thirteen B depends on my mood. My favorite part of that, of course, is. The, the words crane driver. <laughs> I think that's the best detail. <laughs> Ivor the crane driver. He starred in a couple of British series where he played a novelist turned sleuth called Jason King uh, with a very uh, out there kind of dress sense and a coiffer. In one of the obituaries I read, uh, Mike Myers says that he was the inspiration for Austin Powers. I didn't believe it until I did an image search for the <laughs> for Peter Wingard, Jason King. And I'll just say you should do that right now. That search Okay. Is a journey. I haven't seen Jason King, and that, as, as we prepared this episode, the egregious nature of that omission from my, my viewing history just becomes more and more urgent and clear. But the reason I recognize this guy is because he, although he appears in several episodes of The Avengers, mm-hmm. he is the primary villain in the iconic episode A Touch of Brimstone, where uh, he is the leader of the Hellfire Club. Ah. This is an episode that was not aired in the United States originally because Diana Riggs' S&M gear, her super hot bustier when she briefly becomes hypnotized or, or something and, and is uh, made a uh, like a concubine or something. I mean, the, the episode kind of treads around this because of, you know, it was the 60s, but uh, she's uh, in the service of the Hellfire Club. And uh-huh. she wears, uh, there is there is a leering slow shot when she shows up in her choker and her black bustier. Then the camera just, just very slowly pans over her. Anyway, Wingard was in that episode. Supposedly, I, I, I need to source this, but this was what Mr. Chris Claremont was thinking of when he created the villain Jason Wingard in the Hellfire Club arc in the X-Men comics of the, you know, the early 80s uh-huh. Claremont burn run. So... There you go. That's what I think of when I think of Peter Wingard. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, I, I I wondered about that connection. Of course, the Hellfire Club was an actual thing, and so I think it's possible we we have two independent. Yeah, and I would like to believe that the genuine Hellfire Club follows the practice of the Avengers episode Hellfire Club, as when Wingard uh, calls a meeting to order by raising a glass and saying, "Gentlemen, Hellfire." <laughs> and then draining the glass and throwing it into the fireplace as as you must because two evil was low hanging fruit <laughs> alright so yes as you mentioned six notices an older man and uh, number 14 point of fact ignoring Rover with complete impunity follows him to a chess ground which is literally that it's a lawn right. covered with chess tiles uh-huh. and, I, and I am going to recast all of the parts in this episode so the, the guy the old guy who just keeps on shuffling along when Rover goes by is Abe Vigoda yeah sure he, he's giving you some Vigoda energy some fish energy number six is asked if he plays chess and every time I've seen this episode before I thought that was silly because if, it doesn't matter he, like, he's just gonna yes he's gonna be a human chess thing but he's told what to do and then I remembered that you have to know that silly chess speak on to Queens 4 if you you know, want to know how to, how and where to move. So it makes sense. Right. Well, if you don't move where you're supposed to, they're going to zoom in on the tannoy a lot until you do. <laughs> yep. And you and we'll get some reverb on the speakers. That's also a bad thing. 
Horn to Queen's Farm. Horn to Queen's Farm. To the Queen's Farm. To the Queen's Farm. to the Queen's Farm. He's asked if he plays chess, and then he goes and takes up the position of the queen's pawn. He gets in a conversation uh, with a woman playing the queen, uh, one Rosalie Crutchley. She is uh, number eight, in point of fact. <clears throat> Phoebe Wallerbridge. Go ahead. She gives some of that energy. I'll give that to you. Uh, we notice that he is being observed by number two, who's got, in this role, Wingard is, is really giving off some you know, posh fop energy, I would say. He's got a certain physical resemblance to Peter O'Toole. Do you agree? I do. If you certainly. can't get Peter O'Toole, you get you get a Wingard. I, I think his scarf is longer than any other number two scarf. Exactly. Uh, the White Queen's Rook uh, moves out of turn and declares the check and is taken to the hospital for mm-hmm. reprogramming or yep. rehabilitation because he's manifested the cult of the individual. Right. This is uh, Brian Cox. <laughs> it's, 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 no, his real name is... Uh, Something rad, where it's a, he has a. I'm gonna say Ronald Rad. Right, Ronald Rad is the Rook. Uh-huh. It's a great alliteration. No, this is uh, Brian Cox in Manhunter, and of course I had to look up and realize that when he appeared as Hannibal Lecter in Manhunter, Brian Cox was fucking younger than I am right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Which yep. uh, I mean, he lived hard and he's Scottish. Uh-huh. He right. he could pull it off, and and he was eating a diet of uh, hopefully deserving people, but he did eat people. So there's. There's also that, but that's that's who number 58 is. Yep. Same number that my girl Rachel Herbert had in Free For All, by the yep. way, because they are very unoriginal when it comes to choosing two and three digit numbers on this show. They just had the prop department make up like the few different... They only had like 20 buttons. Yeah, and uh, you know, and this is a cold take, but uh, Brian Cox is excellent as Hannibal in Manhunter. Uh, he's just great. Do you ever look at Blood and Moonlight, Will? It appears very black. Uh, okay, so... Um, yeah, Anthony Hopkins really stole his thunder. That's not fair. I'm not saying not Hopkins fair. didn't deserve his Oscar, but yep. uh, but Brian Cox was great. It percent screen time to impact on that film. He's in Judy Dench and Shakespeare in Love territory. Number 14 uh, asks, the, who's the older guy with, with the cane, asks Six to take a walk with him. And this is where 14 uh, says to Six that you can tell the villagers from the Guardians. By their disposition, by the moves they make, you soon know who's for you or against you. Don't follow you. It's simple psychology, the way it is in life. You judge by attitudes. People don't need uniforms. Why complicated? To keep your mind alert. What use is that to you here? And uh, as he's saying this, they stop by the shop window, and that same creepy doll that greeted Six upon his arrival is placed delicately in the window. A couple months ago, I made my, my first bike ride over to Glen Echo Park, uh-huh. there, just right on the border between Maryland and, and D.C. It's just the right distance for a nice bike ride. And I was getting real Port Marion vibes off of that place. Which is an abandoned amusement park, basically, right? Well, it's not abandoned. I mean, various arts organizations are headquartered there and artists have studios. And But, but yeah, I mean, it was built in the 1890s as a commercial amusement park and operated that way through at least the first half of the 20th century so it, it has that antiquated vibe a joker hideout well there's a children's theater that does puppet shows there so so yes <laughs> and they do have a window with some puppets on display in the window and i realized in that shot of this episode I was like that's why i was thinking of port marion when mm-hmm. i was, was wandering around mm-hmm. a park yep the queen uh, follows six which he picks right up on because tradecraft because he because she's also not she's uh-huh. kind of uh, being pretty obvious right. about it. 
Uh, she says she wants to help him escape. Uh, and, of course, six is going to six. He is not picking up anything that she is putting down in any sense of the term. Yeah, he has ignored the advances of women and men who are a lot better at this than number eight is. I yeah, mean, she's, she's she's pretty awkward, too. She's, she's yeah, she's, she's, she's not pussyfooting around. She's throwing it out there, and he's not picking it up. I do like the sort of children's book quality that when she tells him, she's like, are you going to escape? Do you have a plan? I'd like to see you. When do you plan to escape? How do you know I was going to? Well, everybody plans to escape with their spirits broken. Tell me your plan and I'll help. Help who? Well, I like you. If it's a good plan, I'll escape with you. That really seems like it's, I don't know, out of the, the tortoise and the hare or, or something. I, I dug it. He doesn't use his usual love language with her, which is get out. Not yet. He will. He will later. <laughs> of course. But right now, he's not doing that. I think if we look back, Six has a different vibe with younger women than women who are his age or older. He is much more respectful. Has He is more into maternal-tinged relationships than, yeah. than romantic-tinged relationships. Right. I'm thinking of that uh, joke that Tina Fey and Amy Poehler made at the, the Oscars that year that... Gravity, how George Clooney would rather drift away into space and die than spend time with a woman his own age. Mm-hmm. The next morning, he is greeted by Peter O'Toole. <laughs> See what I did there? Peter O'Toole. Not bad. Three out of six. Usual conversation. Will, will you never learn? Never. Blah, blah, blah. We have ways if you force us to use them. And then we get what we're all waiting for, the McGowan punch. I can guess that from the state of the man you took yesterday. And then we get a, this sudden wide shot of the village. And as soon as that happened, I wanted to see pigeons fly off because it just seems like such an outsized reaction to what is a very prosaic and by this point usual conversation for this guy yeah that might have been an adr line right because i don't think we see him say that he's talking to uh number two who's just rolled up and and hollered at him from the mini moak like hey hey (laughs) and uh but yeah i don't i think we're looking at a like an establishing shot of port Marion when you know at least a long shot from overhead when when we hear him speak that line i think we see him say i can guess that uh and then when he goes to the next part of it i think that's when we we get get that weird shot yeah, why would you cut in the middle of that line? Uh-oh. You might at least show us the hospital when he references the hospital, but nope. It's no, just the I, whole town. I think it's there to either hide something in the in the edit or it, it's because they want to show that he is, yeah, he's raising his voice. We realize this is crazy. This is, this is yeah. not a thing a normal person would do. Right. But no, instead, number two takes him to the hospital where he observes the Rook's uh, rehabilitation treatment. He's been dehydrated. He's been drugged. He awakens in a room with water coolers. There's some operant conditioning bullshit, positive and negative reinforcement, shock treatment, yada, yada. And the thing about it is that as soon as he does what the village wants him to do, drink from the water cooler that uh, he thought was electrified, even though they tell him it's not, then the treatment is over. (laughs) Then it works immediately, and they're like, yep, he's good. Well, he certainly looked like he was suffering. I mean, they told us he had been dehydrated, mm-hmm. and uh, he says, water, water, please have some water. Yes, that's a lot of times. Acting. Yeah. I'm not telling any tales out of school here, Glenn. You have volunteered on prior episodes of the show that you suffer from partial colorblindness. Was this scene triggering from you? Did no, you... no. These are, these no. are colors I can see. It's just okay. like if, if there right. was a red... A dark red and a brown water cooler? <laughs> they said. I'd be fucked. Drink from the Burt Umber water <laughs> yes, cooler. Yes, exactly. You'd be fucked, man. Tan. <laughs> no, that's not tan. That's buff. That, that would be, I would not be able to. Khaki. 
So uh, six goes around testing 14's theory about how you can tell the, the prisoners from the warders by there's no other way to say it, Chris. He is cruising men by the fountain. He is just walking through, and if they challenge him, they're tops, and if they look fearful, they're bottoms. Uh, or, or he's just, it's just, it's tough to make heads or tails out of a system because we see him making notes in the newspaper on the uh, chess grid. Eh? Yep. Uh-huh. And it's, he just writes the word rook when he fixes the rook with a hard stare and the rook flees. He crosses out random numbers. What's going on there? I don't know what that means. I, I'm also, this seems like something that should be easily intelligible, but I'm, I'm still thrown by moonset. Moonset, yeah. Is that dawn? Is there, is there a period between between moonset and dawn? There is a period between moonset and dawn, yes. Generally speaking. Well, you know, the reason I don't know that is because I've never seen a knight. Um, <laughs> I'm going to eat my dessert first because this is a Just Desserts episode and say I like the way this episode wraps up so much because Six's plan ultimately fails because he's such a bully and a jerk yep. to everybody. You know, yep. it is a shame that the movie Roadhouse came out 22 years too late for number six to have seen it prior to his extraordinary rendition to the village. Because if Patrick of Magoon had just followed the mantra of Patrick of Swayze mm. as Dalton, the one name famous bouncer. Yep, go on. Whom everyone thinks would be taller and just be nice. He would have made it out of there. His okay. plan would have worked. Mm-hmm. He would have blended in. His co-conspirators would not have suspected him of being one of the warders. And they would have made it out of there on the uh, uh, MS uh, Petroska. Petroska. (laughs) Not the Potemkin, except they wouldn't because it turns out to be a village vessel anyway. Yep, you certainly did eat the dessert right there because that is the big reveal. But, however, it's good to know that, yes, Six learns his lesson in this episode and he is forever changed. And he will never again be a dick to anyone, much less to women. Because (laughs) that's that's a real... It's a real, real life lesson. Turning point episode. It, yeah, it so isn't. <laughs> we we come to the show for character development. That's that's why we love it. There is a great moment when uh, Six is just following the Rook, uh, and he just sort of looms out of the bushes like uh, Snoopy <laughs> out of the pumpkin patch. I I screen capped that. Yeah, that's gonna go on our on our Instagram feed. He is the great pumpkin. Uh, and then when Six catches the Rook, he tells him, "Your thoughts interest me," which is an almost human interaction. Like that, uh-huh. oh, now don't get me wrong, that's that's how a robot would flirt, but it is, uh-huh. there's something there. It, it's almost normal. Right. Um, he then interrogates the Rook, uh, number 53, who very, very logically just assumes that Six is working for the village because he's being a dick. He tells him that he developed that electronic defense system, which again, mm-hmm. sounds yep. like a toy. Transistors. Transistors, uh, he wanted to give to the whole world, and that's why he's at the village, but it turns out the secrets that he's keeping were given away by a bureaucrat. Take that bureaucracy. Six and the Rook proceed to, as the guy running control, it's not the usual guy running control, says, get friendly. No, it's uh, number 56, it's old Luke Wilson. Oh yeah, sure, I see that. Yeah, 60-something Luke Wilson put on a little weight, uh, using the the Brill Cream now, never got that nose fixed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Old Luke Wilson as number 56. Two is convinced that uh, the treatment of the Rook is completely effective, so they effectively relax their surveillance of number six and of the Rook, which gives six leave to put his plan, his fiendish plan, fiendish in its intricacies, uh, his plan into motion, which is to drag a hapless Rook around the village and act like a dick to everyone he comes across. 
uh, to see how they'll react. Well, well, hang on a second. They haven't completely relaxed their uh, surveillance protocol of number six. So much as changed tactics because they have assigned him a new surveiller. That's true. It's coming in a bit. There's a gardener that tells him to essentially fuck off. And there's a painter who is easily cowed. And there's the old shopkeeper, good old number 19. Dennis Shaw. Dennis Shaw, who we'll see again and again. They are all acquiescent to yeah. acquiescent. I like that Dennis Shaw, no matter where he is, he's at the stone boat. He's in number two's residence later, uh, getting ready to perpetrate some mob violence on number two, we think. Mm-hmm. Never takes that apron off. He is devoted to his work. Or the apron and the straw hat. <laughs> or the butter hat. Yeah, he keeps yep. the butter hat. So... The village observes him meeting with some of his fellow prisoners, and they decide to bring him in for testing, which at this stage is a very fun word association test. Cat. Dog. Rain. Shine. Desk. Work. Hope. Anchor. Anchor? The hope and anchors. Pub I used to drink at. <laughs> Tree. Leaf. Home. Away. Return. Game. Love. Game. Game. Tennis. Table. Chair. Ship. Shape. Red. Sails. Free. For all. Yeah, is there anything that jumps out at you about this test? It's it's just a little fun moment. Uh, well, there was a time when number six would like to lift a few pints at the old Hope and Anchor pub. Mm-hmm. Like He never struck me as a drinking man, but, you know, in happier times, maybe he was quite a jovial fellow. What do you think? He's, he'd, he'd have a shandy? What do you think? What do you think? He wouldn't okay, have a lager. Well, wouldn't have an ale. I am a, a shandy drinker of my own self, Glenn, okay, okay. in uh, warmer temps, so uh, I'll try not to, to take that as a slight. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what he would he, We know he loves tea with, with lemon. Yes, we uh, do. And also uh, vodka and whiskey. He knows what they cost in the village, so he must know. Right. Uh, he must know. <laughs> Intimately. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. No, I, I cannot think what he would put back. Yeah. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't be free jewels. It wouldn't be a dry sherry. But uh, <laughs> who knows? So previous tests have established positive signs of abnormality, a total disregard for personal safety, and a negative reaction to pain. Now, Chris, what the hell does that mean? Because I have a negative reaction to pain. I hate it. I don't. I don't like it at all. It's my negative reaction. Does that mean yeah. he doesn't feel pain, or it doesn't hmm. bother him? Hmm. What does that mean? I know Robert Carlyle's villain in The World Is Not Enough does not feel pain mm-hmm. because the bullet that lodged in his head somehow without killing him severed his nerve endings or whatever the fuck. But to answer your question, I have no idea what that means. Mm. A negative yeah. reaction to pain. Maybe it means fear of pain does not deter him the way it would an ordinary man. Mm-hmm. I know from reading the uh, Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, The Unbeliever, that uh, leprosy affects the nerves. And it causes you not to feel pain, which is why you're, you're in danger, why? because you can't tell that you've hurt yourself. Mm. Therefore, yeah, the wound yeah. that you don't know you have could get infected, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This scene is probably my least favorite in the episode because they are setting him up as superhuman. They, use, they toss out that word superhuman. Um, right. And that's just not, that's again the allegory taken over and over. The queen is brought in and she is brainwashed into falling in love with number six. Isn't he handsome? Isn't he manly? You love him passionately, devotedly. Yes. You're quoting uh, number 23 here as played by B. Arthur. <laughs> she's she's kind of mod era B. Arthur, but I'll give you that, yeah. Uh, so the queen is given a locket that will record her emotions. The transistor. Yes. It will record all her emotions for control. Boy, they are really impressed with this locket technology. They love talking about it. 
He loves you too. He has sent you this locket. You will wear it always next to your heart. Do you understand me? I love everything about this. I like the Midsummer's Dream thing of like, poof, we're just going to make you fall in love with this person of our choosing. I love it. And I love that they monitor her emotions with a little flashing light love tester. Did you ever go to an arcade and play the love tester sure, game or yes. the grip strength thing? Yep. Yeah. Look at her pulse rate. She's with him. That's what this thing is. The frequency with which this red light is flashing and beeping tells them when, when she is in number six's presence because her, her pulse is pushing 80 and still rising. It's like my reaction to Rachel Herbert. She's there pushing 80 and Just I'm still, 80. well, and never, never mind. I like that. She's pushing 80. They call it pulses. Uh, they don't say pulse, her pulse. They call <laughs> her, it her pulses, her pulses <laughs> which makes it sound like her beans, yep, her, it's like, her doll. It's, she it has does. the vapors. Something about pluralizing that makes it sound more antiquated and I love it. That's true. The psychiatrist has noted some aggressive tendencies in number six because she's got two ears and a pulse. Uh, <laughs> she recommends a leucotomy, which is just another word for lobotomy, um, to knock out those aggression centers. It's a little more saleable. <laughs> leucotomy doesn't sound quite as harsh as lobotomy. And of course, when John Schneider and Tom Wolpott decided not to come back to the Dukes of Hazards, that was a Bowen leucectomy, oh, not a Bowen leucotomy. Okay. Seven out of six. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go that far. I can't dispute it. Uh, so at this point, six just straight up steals a taxi, and the queen steals a taxi to follow him, and they swipe some electronic equipment in a very kind of bold-faced <laughs> way. That's not. Yep. That's mm-hmm. unsubtle. There are no axles Foley when that's it comes true. to bump, bump, distracting bump, the people whose bump, vehicle bump, you're going bump, to sabotage. Bump, bump, bump. Six seems now to know. That's some jazzy crime music right there. That right? is jazzy crime music. Six seems to know the queen is following him. Again, tradecraft. And he distracts her so the rook can hide the electronic equipment. And when he greets her, she pulls up to him, honking that annoying fucking horn. Uh, <laughs> he says to her, his opening gambit, his, his move is, you have some explaining to do, haven't you? Like, what? why? What a shameless flirt he is. What, 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 why is he saying that to yeah. her? He doesn't know anything about... She hasn't been following him incessantly yet. This is her, his no. first seeing her after she's been dispatched. But I'm going to say, like, just ordering them in terms of likelihood in which I might actually deploy these phrases in real life. If I have to choose between how does one speak to someone they have only seen in their dreams mm-hmm. and um, what was the other one he tried on uh, number eight earlier? You just, you just Okay, I don't remember either. But uh, I don't know. I, I can imagine approaching another carbon-based life form and saying, well, you have some explaining to do, don't you? I can, I think I could make that work. I think I could find the right inflection to... Yeah, sure. Okay. It's maybe the first thing he's ever said that I, like, I can imagine myself using that line. Okay. Um, I, I, I see that. In a scene we don't get to see in full, I think mercifully, uh, she basically just dumps out her emotions on the floor of the Minimoke and she tells him that she loves him and he responds in a very on-brand way. Uh, <laughs> uh, you're crazy. Uh, yeah. Uh, everyone's too close. <laughs> Um, I, I don't disagree with him, but... Who put you onto this? Nobody. How can you doubt me? It's easy, and I'm waterproof. A slight drizzle won't wash away my doubt, so don't try. I don't want to be near you. And everybody's near in this place, far too near. Let me know. Shan't be around. I, I like that that scene actually begins with him telling her she's crazy. Like, yep. we don't even see her declaration of love. Because did, who's got time for that shit? I no, guess. right? Absolutely. <laughs> it's great. Yes. Yeah, and media res. Instead, what we do see is a 
pretty extended hot chocolate making scene where she kind of shows up in his apartment in her where She robe. is humming Pop Goes the Weasel. Is she? Okay. She is. I knew she was humming something. We have heard Pop Goes the Weasel before mm-hmm. in, this, in this episode. Uh, and then he kind of doubles down on his dickishness because he's had it. He just rebuffs her completely. She throws herself at him even harder. This is a profoundly abusive relationship if it really was one. Well, she did just let herself into his residence 10 minutes before curfew. I mean, he's he's already in his PJs and his uh, stripy blue mm-hmm. bathrobe. And so she he took a liberty there. She did take a liberty, but uh, you know, so he does bust out his love language. Get out. He she gets a, she gets a nice get out. <laughs> the next day on the beach, the rook uh, who doesn't look like he's a swimmer, put it that way, is greeted by number 2 who is looking great. Got some great shades. He's looking very swinging London. Yeah. Very Carnaby Street. Number two tells him if he gets another attack of egotism, he should head to the hospital. No, No, I'm sorry. I must correct you there. He says if you suffer from another attack of egotism. Egotism. True. Right. If you are just mad for ego waffles, you need one right (laughs) now. We we know how important breakfast is to number twos. So, you know, let go my egotism. (laughs) <laughs> and bring yourself to the hospital. I mean, it does make it sound like an attack of egotism is something you could take a couple tablets for, you know, like <laughs> clutch your chest and take some tablets. Yep. <laughs> Instead of uh, stripping down to his skivvies and, and taking a long mile swim along the beach, he instead heads to a changing tent where he is secretly assembling an electronic device with transistors. And it's at this point, Chris, that a, I'm going to say remarkably playful number six joins him in the tent. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I think I've, we found all of the village's cruising spots, and this is one of them. But number <laughs> six takes an antenna. He's ripped off a taxi and pokes him, pokes the back of his head, poke, poke, and it says, touche. Yep. He is making a fencing joke. Who is, is this super man? funny. Yeah, that's uh, like sticking your finger in somebody's back and going, stick him up. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> I th- oh, you could You could... Wave it away by saying he's just so excited. He thinks he's going to escape. So he's kind of, yeah. tease. Giddy is a schoolgirl. <laughs> um, turns out they need more transistors, <laughs> which is a very tacky on field Star Trek thing to say. We need more transistors. Uh, we need to reverse the polarity. We need more dilithium crystals. We need more dilithium crystals to reverse the polarity on the transistors. Uh, Six goes to find some and doesn't quite run into the queen, but kind of walks straight up to the queen. And for a moment, he tries to be a human being. Uh, and fails. There is one moment when he tries to convince her to hand over the locket. <laughs> so he smiles at her in a completely terrifying way because that face, those muscles are not used to smiling and it just got like a look of pure malice. Well, he tells her uh, he doesn't think the photo in it is so flattering and he'll get her another one if she'll let him keep the locket because his danger man file photo <laughs> is maybe... See, now, if you give her the photo that Allison took where you yeah. got the cards where yeah. you're Mr. Mr. Fun Guy yep. with the, the card fan... Thinking. Yes. That would be a better photo. That photo is of him scowling down the barrel of the <laughs> camera. So, I mean, that is not a Sears Portrait Studio photo you choose. Uh, and then the wiring. The wiring is just these two fat, like, worms. <laughs> like, these are the transistors <laughs> that that, we're, that everything will depend upon. They're just like these just uh, giant. Do, do I cut the slugs? red rope or the blue rope? <laughs> <sighs> he takes his leave of the queen, and that's a episode wrap on the queen. We see do not see her again on this or any episode, but she's still... She's still love drunk. She is still sex starved. She is still, she's going to be chasing him around this village like she is Pepe Le Pew. And he is a black cat with a stripe of white paint on his back forever. They're not going to like unhypnotize her, right? 
No, their follow through is is not good. They don't even remember what they did last episode. They do have a, well, uh, since we, we did erroneously watch Do Not Forsake Me, Oh, oh My Darling, thinking we were going to do that next. Um, that episode does make it clear that the village does have in its bag of tricks a memory erasing device. Oh. So, you know, certainly they, they could uh, make everybody forget about all their many, many other failed schemes yeah. via via that also, I'm going to acknowledge, since I'm, I'm not sure if my mic is picking it up, but it just started pouring out here. So yeah. uh, maybe we'll, we'll get a nice Foley effect, atmospheric rain behind my voice. I don't know. I don't, I don't think it'll pick up, but it might. Okay. Who knows? The actress here is 47 years old, and he is, what, 39, I think, 39. determined? 39. And as I say, he does seem to have an easier time with women who are older than he is. Mrs. Butterworth, uh, The Dance of the Dead, number two. It always seems like there's a, maybe, maybe I'm just detecting a lack of utter contempt. Maybe that's what I'm picking yeah. up on. Yeah. Madame Ungadine. Madame Ungadine. He takes the locket to the rook, who says, this is all I need, and that the device will be ready by nightfall. Control alerts the psychiatrist that the locket has kaput, and they start searching the beach for him. And this is yet another time, Chris, when it strikes you again how, while all of this surveillance must have seemed so intrusive and harrowing and Orwellian in 1967, today it looks like complete amateur hour. I mean... yeah. There are gas stations with better surveillance than the village. Like, this is silly. Yeah. The way Brian Cox just takes that gigantic suitcase-sized camera off of its mounting in such a way that, like, it doesn't even occur to Luke Wilson back in the control room that, well, someone sabotaged the camera. He's just like, what? Electrics department. Service immediately. Camera camera kaput. And it's not like wiring blue or something like that. It was a short circuit. Somebody took the damn camera. You'd think there would be some kind of crackdown there, but nope. I would think they they might position the camera in a place where you need an exotic device, like, I don't know, a ladder to reach it instead Mm -hmm. of just putting it there at convenient, like, four and a half, five feet off the ground. Right. And it's pivoting at, like, 45 degrees as opposed to, like, uh, you know, it's only getting a certain tiny little bit of that one (laughs) crossroads. So... Six sets out to alert the other prisoners that he trusts that it's on tonight at Moonset. Rook to Queen Pawn Six, which just like when your code words are more suspicious than saying the thing. Yeah. Like that just seems like like if somebody overheard that, be like, oh, something, something is, oh, something is going down tonight at Moonset. <laughs> the atmosphere here is different from the atmosphere <laughs> elsewhere. Elsewhere. If you know what I mean. They head back to the changing tent because, of course, they do. Uh, they send out a radio signal, a fake mayday call, which gets picked up by the MS Polotska. Which uh, MS, I think, here is usually a merchant vessel. I think that's we're supposed to mm. be led to thinking it's a merchant vessel. And speaking of great Foley work, I do like the way number six is crumbling a piece of paper oh, in yeah, front of the microphone good. to make it sound like the radio transmission is garbled and full Mayday of interference. To Mayday to Palatska. Our position is... Degrees, latitude, over. Palatska to Mayday, we're not reading you. I enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Because they ask him, what are your coordinates? And he doesn't know, obviously. So he's just right. kind of like... Um, the village reacts by firing up a searchlight, um, which Six immediately determines has to be taken out. Why? Wouldn't a searchlight be a good thing to attract a boat, say, off the shore? If you're trying to attract a boat and try to have a boat find you? That is puzzling. But maybe they just felt that he or Director Don Chafee thought that an exciting jazz fist fight on the stairs of the of the lighthouse was what this episode needed. And as this fist fight is going on, you're waiting for somebody to get thrown out the tower because like it's right there and but no, they keep getting thrown down the stairs until finally somebody gets 
And is that the Wilhelm scream? It I seemed, think it is. I think it's the Wilhelm scream too. Okay. I, I think we might have heard that in Schizoid Man also when Flapjack Charlie Curtis gets gets rovered. Yeah, that maybe. that is a orally... A-U-R-A-L-L-Y, mm-hmm. more extreme death than any thus far experienced in this true. Show. Six and his cronies break into, essentially, the Green Dome. Two greets them in a very kind of, hi-ho, good yep. to see you. What's what's all this then? Anyone for tennis? They they are a, not a particularly threatening bunch. No, I mean, you got I, Dennis I would... Shaw again with his boater and his, uh, I mean, I think Patrick McGowan is the youngest and hardiest member of this mob by like 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they, they don't look particularly imposing. Nope. They think the boat has arrived, but uh, Six quiets that down, says, nope, it's too early, it's too soon. So he runs to the beach where he finds the Rook's raft. Um, he takes it and goes out to the ship that's waiting offshore, which turns out to be, as we suspected, the MS Palatska. But twist, as you yeah. spoiled earlier, Chris, it is the village's ship. The Rook has turned on him because, as you mentioned, number two, and number two patiently explains, uh, his cutting strategy of treating everyone like a piece of shit uh, has backfired on him. (laughs) Because, of course... It's made us think maybe you're not a nice guy. (laughs) Yes, because, of course, his co-conspirators just assumed he was a guardian. Now, they went along with this plan for a very long time. Like, they went along with this plan a lot if they just thought he was a guardian. Well, I mean, it does... often take a long time to leave an abusive relationship. That's true. You know, I mean, you have to choose your moment and you, you, you can't risk further inflaming your abuser's rage. Mm-hmm. So you, you do have to kind of go along and placate them until, yep. until the time for a escape presents itself. Heard that. That bit where, where he is on the, the raft going out to the, the ship. Um, one, there's clearly day for night, but there's something cool about the, the lighting effect, the way the lighting comes off the water, and he's sort of in silhouette. Even though it's obviously day for night, it looks really cool. Mm-hmm. And there is a, this is a great scoring moment. This is not one of the easily recognizable, oft-reused music cues that we hear elsewhere in this episode. Uh-huh. I couldn't tell if they, they, they might have stolen this bit of scoring from a movie or something. It sounded familiar, but I couldn't place it. But I really I really liked it. Very moody. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the jazzy fight scene that follows again. <laughs> right. That, that makes this goofy, much-reused cue that scores the, the fight scene on the stairs of the lighthouse all the more... It just calls out its its uh, silliness. We get a jazzy fight scene where he yeah where he knocks out everybody on the boat um, without you know I mean he gets his hair must but you know it's pretty pretty easy thing for him to do to make people unconscious. We've seen this before many times. He tries to steer the boat. The boat won't be steered because it's a village boat. Then there's an orange alert, and then Rover approaches the boat, but Rover is much smaller than the boat. But the boat turns around, or Rover pushes the boat. I think Rover is pushing the boat back into shore. Okay. I think that's what's happening. All right. So that's it. That's, you know, zoom, slam, face, whatever, whatever, whatever the thing is we said before. Uh, that's the end of this episode. Uh, it is a favorite of many, many, uh, yeah. many, many fans. And McGowan said he thought of it as the quintessential prisoner episode. It is certainly in his top seven or central seven. Yeah. It certainly makes great use of a lot of village locations that we haven't really seen before. It's not just the same six places. It's like 
back streets. And, right. And this was one of those first four that they were shooting in that uh, September 66 month where they were just on location in Port Marion every single day. They were mm-hmm. doing this. They were doing Dance of the Dead. They were doing Arrival. And I'm not sure what the other one was. But mm-hmm. uh, so we, we get full advantage of the Port Marion locations in this episode. So what'd you think? Five out of six. This is the kind of episode that I think would not have caused any great discord between Magoon and, and Markstein because mm-hmm. nothing nothing all that wild happens. Certainly there are fantastic technologies like uh, Rover and uh, the mind control locket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that video camera that f- <laughs> just shows you what's going on on the beach. Imagine. <laughs> It doesn't break its own rules in the way that, that other episodes flagrantly That's break true. their own rules. Right. Five out of six. I'm with you there. Five out of six. I like it. I kind of wanted some of the, if we're going to introduce a chess sort of light motif, I kind of wanted that to recur a little bit more or be more prominently featured. Like the protection of the queen should yeah. have factored in somehow here. That's cool imagery. And I kind of wanted to have that play out more. I don't like the Queen's storyline being kind of abandoned. No. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, that, that harmony of, of narrative and, and imagery. Like, when, when do we ever get that in this show, really? It's true. Like, I, I can't think of one episode where that, that comes off. I'd say that in um, Once Upon a Time... The idea of the stages of the, you know, all the world's a stage and like this yeah. ages of man, the allegory is introduced and then it is followed. That has this kind of a stronger resonance here. If you're going to be throwing something with like chess metaphors, right, you have to do something stronger than we're all pawns. Like, okay, yeah, yeah. we got it. That was said in the first episode. We got it. Again, I keep coming back to this, but in this particular episode, the village looks um, especially charming and lovely and with little shadowy back streets. I mean, Lukatomy, Shlukatomy. I would, I would just <laughs> sign me up. I would just yeah. spend so much time. It just seems so relaxing. Do you think this is uh, the village is where Coy and Vance were, were brought to after Bill and Luke? <laughs> maybe, maybe that's showed where. up back to set. Uh huh. Absolutely. And of course, we've only seen the one American who was the um, announcer on the in the general, like oh, the television yeah. announcer, but no other Americans. Al, what's his name? Mm, can't remember his name. Announcement from the general's department. Repeat, oh. the general. From the general, yes. Really hits the er in general <laughs> really hard. That's how you know he's American. All right, so what are we? where are we going next? Are we doing Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, next? Or is, there an, or is the next one a change of mind? I think, isn't it Living in Harmony is next? Isn't it the Western? Oh, Yeah, I it? think it's Living, I think it's living it? in Harmony. Okay, all right. Yeah, it's Living in Harmony. It's the Western one. It's hallucinogens. It's uh, the interest, the introduction of a certain blonde young actor who will recur uh, in, a, in mm. different ways over the course of the series. Um, <laughs> I remember being bored by that one because I was bored by Westerns, but who knows? It'd be interesting yeah, to well, revisit. But, but you're, uh, you're a, a, a man of broader interests now. You'd think. One when. would think, but that remains to be seen. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit before we wrap up about uh, Peter Wingard's apparently brief side career as a recording artist. Oh, give it uh, to me. There, there, there was a, a released but apparently quickly deleted 1970 LP, um, and it might have just been self-titled. When it was reissued in 1998, it was called When Sex Leers Its Inquisitive Head. I love everything about that. I'm uh, in. Uh, yes, it was an, on initial release, 
simply titled Peter Wingard. I've heard one track, Glenn. Uh, the the track I've heard is called Hippie and the Skinhead. It makes copious use of the the noun, not the verb, but the noun queer. Oh, sure. Apparently there was a track on this album called Rape uh, oh, that was issued okay. under, uh, like there was a promo single by the title Peter Wingard Commits Rape. Anyway, this thing did not... It was pulled from circulation almost instantly upon its, its release. Should we hear a little bit of Hippie and the Skinhead? Or? Yeah, because, I mean, you know, listeners to this podcast have been hearing Hippie and the Skinhead all this time. So Hey! hey. Not bad. Seven out of six. All right. Me <laughs> Hit me one time. Okay. Ah, this is giving me Ballad of Bilbo Baggins vibes. Uh-huh. Billy was a queer, pilly sexy hippie. He wore gear, frilly hairy zippy. Mohair in the winter, less hair in the summer. His mac was black, scarf immaculate, tied loosely, not interfered with promiscuity. Oh, my God. Especially on his trips around 3.30, did Billy the queer, pilly sexy hippie. Then one night he went to troll the dilly to spend a penny and met a skinhead Kenny. Kenny was one too many, a skinhead who hated plenty. It's it's a shame that listeners can't see your face right now. I'll tell them that when you are inevitably frozen in carbonite, this is the expression that you're going to Kenny was a doer, pimply silly drear, whose only joy was knocking down a queer. Like, so is this song about gay bashing? Like, I... in frenzy. Billy gulped, zipped up, and looked less trendy. Oh, there we go. The crew cut Ken and all. I mean, Lou Reed has written a lot of songs about sort of <laughs> like sordid, uh, you know, uh, rough encounters, um, uh-huh. but they don't have such uh, okay, there we go. Uh, banjo instrumentation behind them. So this is not a patter song. We do get some. He, he does attempt to sing there. He's holding a note yep. or two. Oh, there, there we're back again. Okay. Yep. Which made poor Billy realize that peanuts just don't this is, uh, I think bemused is the uh start again with a magnificent ten. A thing in the face, grab hair quickly, slip, 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 will always prickly, flat. What? Oh, poor Billy, no more hat size nine. But stop! Halt! Go back. Rerun real. What's that between Ken's clammy hand? A load of hay? Familiar material? A wig! Detached from yellow band? No, no, I must be caned. Underneath this golden mass is a head as bare... As bare as oh, my And what's this now? Bare still, peeping out in another thrill from torn blouse and button spill? A pair! A pair of skinnies! Cool, what a pair! She's a bird! She's a bird! A bird! Oh, this is... Sucking time and energy from my life. So Ken a less doer, silly, pimply, drear, because Billy certainly was no pilly, sexy, hippie, queer. 
Okay. I mean, I had to keep listening because there was a story element to it, a narrative element to it, right. that I wanted to see so what happened to Billy the, the Pimply the Sexy. Scheherazade. You, you got mm-hmm. Scheherazaded. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I did. Wow. Um, okay. Uh, he, he, I don't know what to say about that. It's right. like there was this um, series of albums called Golden Throats. So they would take something, you know, a Leonard Nimoy ballad of Bilbo Baggins or a William Shatner, Lucy in the Sky, or, you know, just, just non-singers who uh, attempted to enter the field of singing. And it was a great source of fun in the 80s. Right. This is too long, and I'm going to argue too weird to derive that kind of joy from. It's just... I think this is only like a year after Shatner's The Transformed Man. Yeah, yeah, but it's got that energy, and it's <laughs> so self-indulgent. And yet, he's be, he'd be talking about queers and skinheads, you know? So... right. He's uh he's standing in his truth. Yeah. Put it that way. Good for him. There is a a feature devoted to him on the Prisoner Blu-ray set called The Pink Prisoner. Uh-huh. Where he is he's wearing pink. He is uh as you say now um glabrous of dome. Uh, he's wearing his cool sunglasses, similar to the ones he wears in in this episode in, in oh, Checkmate. Cool. He is sitting for the duration of this interview in that Spherical number two chair. Good for him. Um, that in front of a blue screen. And he has a credit. Like apparently the format and, and staging of this interview was all his idea. There is an off-screen voice doing the Charlie Brown's teacher thing. Mm-hmm. Saying, bop, 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 which I guess Wingard told them to do. Mm-hmm. Then he would re- repeat the question saying, oh, well, well, how did McGowan first tell me about the prisoner? Well, I, I have a story about that. And mm-hmm. It's it's worth watching in its nine minute twenty four second entirety. Uh, he That's talks about how the actor has a relationship with the camera far more intimate than in the relationship they would have with anyone off screen. Mm. You see, mm-hmm. so uh, if you can get yourself <laughs> a copy of, I, I actually have a spare of the uh, <laughs> the Blu Ray Prisoner set that I think I, I got when it was super cheap on Amazon or something. We're just just waiting for the right contest idea to present. Yeah, I was going to say that's exactly that what can, should happen. We can, uh, Give that away to wow. Uh, wow. one lucky physical media loving listener. Yeah, I, that was released unto the world. Yes, it was taken back immediately, but yet still, <laughs> at least one yeah. producer, one. Yeah, like a clockwork orange, it came out and then it was pulled, yep. and you couldn't get it in England for yep. decades. Yep, yep, yep. Boy. But thank God they had the, the bootleg, the, the basement tapes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Wow. Um, yeah, I, 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 he, he earned his moniker, the flamboyant, Peter Wingard. And I guess I didn't realize that skinheads was a thing in the '60s. I thought yeah, skinheads were me a... neither. Man, I love these titles. Ronald Rad and mm-hmm. Peter Wingard were both in something called a magnum for Schneider. Uh huh. <laughs> this book. This ah. is the uh, Robert Faircloth or Fairclaw. Prisoner official companion to the classic TV series. It says, alarmingly, that's that's his adverb. Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not editorializing there. Alarmingly, thirty thousand women in Australia voted him, him being Peter Wingard, the man they most wanted to lose their virginity to. I think that's probably the power of the two sleuth series he was on, where he was playing that guy. And also, I just want to note here that Ronald Rad, who played uh, the Rook, uh, was in a 1969 film called. Can Hieronymus Merkin ever forget Mercy Hump and find true happiness? Say it again. <laughs> Can Hieronymus Merkin ever forget Mercy Hump and find true happiness? Wow. 
It does hurt my feelings when you say Ronald Rad the Rook without rolling any of the R's there, Glenn. <laughs> uh, you know, if, if I feel that Patrick would have done it, I would have done it, but I don't feel he would. Because he's not, he's not trying to punch the names at, at all. Uh-huh. All right. What are we doing next? I believe we're doing Living in Harmony. The, that's, the next up on the, that's the next up on the Amazon order anyway. Mm. Yet I say, yet. No, Glenn, mm-hmm. next is Hammer into Anvil. Uh, your credibility issues persist. I should know never to trust mm. you by now. When we do get around to Living in Harmony, we will have special guest Ben Blacker from the Thrilling Adventure Hour. That'll be fun. But next week, brush up on your Gerda because <laughs> it is hammer into anvil. Mm-hmm. Until then, Glenn, we shall try to live in harmony for the week to follow and be seeing you. Be buddy. seeing you. Degree Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me, Chris Klemick. I wrote our goofy theme song, which was then arranged and beautifully performed by my dear friend Casey Aaron Clark, singing and playing keyboards, and her brother Jonathan Clark on guitar and percussion with Marcus Newstead on the bass. Check out Casey at CaseyAaronClark.com and or VitalVoiceTraining.com. Jonathan's band Daybringer is on Bandcamp. You can find them there. Write to the Citizens Advice Bureau at a degree absolute at Gmail. You can tweet us at not a number pod. Rate, review, and subscribe to our show on Apple or Stitcher or whatever platform you use to hear it. Finally, I want to tell you that doing this podcast has brought joy into my life, and I asked Faust, Glenn's husband, how it's affected Glenn's mental state. Overweening sense of self-importance. His egomania has, if anything, increased. It's no degree partial, it's a degree absolute, absolute. Does that passage include the phrase gross indecency with a crane driver in the public toilets of in a Gloucester sorry. Does that phrase contain the phrase does that passage contain the phrase does that passage contain the phrase gross indecency with a crane driver in the public toilets in Gloucester bus station? Yes, it does. Three fifteen a.m. Thursday, January 15th. It was chilly that morning in the city of Angels. On this particular occasion, we happened to witness a pagan ritual in progress. Mob, and it is our job to bust you all for being violent. While we are here, let's state it clear. You have the right to remain silent. Well, excuse me, comma, Mr. Crime Stopper, what is wrong with what we're doing? We just like to dance in our goatskin pants around this ancient ruin. Now, it's not so funny that it costs big money if you ever have to hire a lawyer. It's my duty to inform you and my pleasure to warn you. We'll provide one for you. Huh.